What does it mean for a movie to have integrity? It's an interesting question because before the conversation you're about to hear, I had never heard that word used to describe a movie before. I've heard it used to describe characters in a movie or maybe like filmmakers themselves, but I've never heard it extrapolated to all facets of a movie, like production design, sound design, extras in the background. But that is what my guest described to me, and I was fascinated by the idea. That guest is Alex Cayetos. He is the senior video editor at BioWare and co-host of the film podcast Beyond the Screenplay. When he spoke to me about his all-time favorite movie, Children of Men, he described it as a movie with integrity in all aspects of its filmmaking. Now, I don't want to be a cliche, but Oxford does define integrity as the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. How exactly does this translate into every single facet of filmmaking? And how do we look for it in Alfonso Cuaron's sci-fi masterpiece? We've got some questions, and Alex has some answers. And he's going to share all of them with you right now. Hello and welcome to My Favorite Movie Is, a podcast sharing the stories behind how an all-time favorite movie earns that title. I'm your host, Larry Freed. I'm a filmmaker, writer, and podcaster. And every week I sit down with a fellow cinephile who, through their one-of-a-kind insights, will help us rethink one of the greatest movies of all time. Thank you so much for being here. I'm sure you listen to plenty of film podcasts, and I am honored that this show is amongst them. Before we go any further, just know that if you haven't seen the movie we're talking about today, don't worry. You can keep listening for now. We will eventually have to dive into the nitty gritty, but we'll be sure to give you a proper warning before we dive deep into spoiler territory. But for those of you who did the homework, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of My Favorite Movie Is. Hello, my name is Alex Cayeros, and my favorite movie is Children of Men. I was born in Mesa, Arizona, which is uh, just kind of near Phoenix, and I grew up mostly in Chandler, Arizona, classic 90s American suburbs, but in the desert with uh, <laughs> lots of heat. You don't really go outside in the summer because it's just so damn hot. Mm. And so a lot of my free summer months weren't really for playing outdoors. You know, the thing to do was go to the movie theater. That was part of probably why films played an outsized role in my childhood was just because we lived in a place where during the months where most kids go out and play, it was like literally too hot to go outside for weeks at a time. That's really fascinating, actually. Yeah. That's, <laughs> hey, thank, <laughs> thank God for the weather. <laughs> I was definitely growing up in you know the early 90s during the Disney Renaissance period. So I saw some of those movies in theaters like Beauty and the Beast, seeing it in theaters that I remember that still pretty clearly of like just the magic of, you know, that music opening on the castle with the narration and some of those early Disney animated movies just felt so magical. That was an early spark of like, wow, I, I love this experience. But, you know, the real turning point, and I've mentioned this on our podcast, Beyond the Screenplay, a few times, I think, is Jurassic Park. Oh, my God. You can make dinosaurs real <laughs> in, <laughs> with this thing called filmmaking. 
that was a pivotal movie theater experience for me when I was like you know, seven, eight years old. It was just completely mind blowing to go into a theater and, and have that experience and to see these creatures rendered with such perfect realism was just something I'd never had seen before. That was the moment where it clicked for me of like, oh, I could do this. You know, before I actually kind of wanted to be a scientist or like a marine biologist or a, or a paleontologist. I loved dinosaurs. I loved the ocean. But then it was like, no, I just want to do this. I want to make real dinosaurs on screen. That's way cooler than digging up bones. <laughs> so, so that Jurassic Park was definitely the turning point towards filmmaking as like the dream. Yeah, why would you want to, you know, uh, study stuff? <laughs> You're right. Uh, <laughs> why don't you just make? Why don't you just make films? As early as you know, like fourth, fifth grade. You know, my dad, you know, had the home video camera, and we were shooting little movies. And into middle school, I was making little Jurassic Park movies and little thrillers and Star Wars things. So I was that typical kid whose dad had a camera, and we were making our kind of goofy little Jurassic Park uh, spin-off movies and such. All through childhood and then you know, in high school, that era was the time when you could have a PC at home with you know, editing software. So you know, went from the, you know, the VHS tape to VHS tape kind of editing, where it's like, I'm gonna have two VCRs side by side and like copy <laughs> this tape over here, but like stop it at this moment to make a cut. Went from that to actually, actually having you know, editing software on my computer. And so I, I had a good deal of experience with like editing already before going to college even. If I ever make money with this filmmaking thing, it's usually through editing. And part of the reason why I gravitated towards editing after film school as like a career path was even though I like, I do really enjoy directing, I really enjoy kind of managing and being like the hub for a bunch of different people on a set. It's just, it is exhausting. Production is so exhausting. Yes, and it really is. I think I don't necessarily have the stamina for it unless it's a project I really care about personally. You know, if, if it's something that I need to see happen, I can muster the stamina for film production. But if it's just going to be like a gig, you know, to make some cash, I can muster the energy to sit in an editing bay and, uh, and you know, put together a good edit. And I, and I really enjoy the editing process because it's also the time when it's all coming together, you know, so it's not, it's no longer, hey, let's get a bunch of coverage and hope this works out in post. It's like, this is post, we are here. Whatever's been given to you is, is your kind of constraints you have to work with. And now your only job is to take what you have and make the best thing possible out of this. And I, and I think having those constraints and having that also that freedom to just like be in this digital space and infinitely play and massage this thing until it feels right. I really enjoy that stage of the process. I'm also an editor person myself. That's usually how I, the, the gigs that I take. So I, I hear you 100%. I would imagine having done so many projects like that, that the choice to go to film school was was pretty inevitable, pretty natural. Can you talk to me a little bit about your choice to attend UC Santa Cruz in California? It was a place where I got to really explore myself as a filmmaker because their film program there is, I don't know if they have a production concentration anymore, but they, they have these different paths. You could stay in like a critical theory path or you could do a concentration in film production. I, of course, wanted to go that direction. And in their film production concentration, they weren't they weren't super industry focused, like a school like USC, where they're really like trying to prepare you to, to like get a job in the industry and like try to make a, a situation where you know what a real Hollywood set feels like. I didn't really get that kind of preparation. But what I did get was a lot of freedom where they, mm. they just had, you know, 
this kind of checkout counter where you can go and check out film equipment and check out, you know, pretty good cameras and uh, good lighting equipment. And so Michael Tucker was a peer of mine, the guy who made lessons from the screenplay and co-host beyond the screenplay with me. And we met in film school and we were just so ambitious at that moment. We were like, okay, we're going to go and we're going to like, we're going to clear out this rental house. We like rented as much (laughs) equipment as we were like legally allowed to by the school. And we would just, you know, we would just do these really ambitious short films kind of like learn by doing. And that was just a great experience to have access to equipment for free and just kind of given free reign to do whatever we wanted. You know, making short films was just an invaluable experience because when you got to the real world and you have to pay for things, uh, yeah, it becomes really cost prohibitive really fast to just like go out and make a short film. So having that playground and access to those resources for at least a couple of years was, was really important. You saw Children of Men while you were in film school. Your first experience watching it, and particularly through that lens, what was that like? It was a perfect moment for me because I think that that January of 2007, I think I saw both The Fountain and Children of Men, which were both kind of like mind-blowing films for film school Alex. I was in this kind of maturing moment of my film appreciation where I had gone through enough kind of film theory classes and had really been studying film as a text you know we were encouraged in film class to really like the language that was used was almost like you're reading a book and you're studying a book when you're watching a film you're not just like sitting back and you know kind of zoning out and turning off your brain like every frame is to be studied and so i was starting to watch film in this deeper way uh, where i was really paying attention to all the layers at, at work in every moment of a film I mean, Children of Men, it rewards that kind of deep watching in spades. It's a masterpiece in every way, as far as I'm concerned, as far as just the technical achievement of the film, the production design achievement of the film, the way like the story is constructed is great. There's not a moment wasted, I don't think. I don't even know where to begin with Children of Men because it, to me, the reason it is my favorite film is because I don't, I don't know how you top this movie. This movie had, I think, clear goals of what it wanted to set out to achieve. And I think it accomplished those goals in the best way conceivably possible and could not be improved upon. And so just to see that as a a film student was like, well, this is the movie to beat. Like, this is what I want to make because like, this is the, the North Star now for me as a filmmaker. This movie did it. (laughs) Like it just, it did it. And I can't believe how perfectly it did it. Can you tell me about any specific scenes or moments in the film, particularly within those first few times watching it that were Mm -hmm. really inspirational or memorable for you, especially in the, in that film school lens? Well, of course, the really obvious thing with this film are the long takes. And that is a big film schooly kind of thing. You know, Mm -hmm. like I think Mm -hmm. long takes kind of became almost a cliche thing in recent years where it's almost annoying now sometimes where, you know, a big Marvel movie or something will will like have a quote unquote long take. And it's it's like, yeah, is that really a long take or is it just, you know, visual (laughs) effect? You're stitching it together. You're 1917. You know, it's like, yes, it's cool. It's a cool idea that this is all one long take, but we know it's not really all one long take. And what is the purpose of this at this point? Just besides saying you've done a whole movie in one long take. 
what I think works about Children of Men to this day and its use of uh, long takes is that it always feels in service to the story and in service to the experience of the characters. And they are always there to enhance the kind of documentary realism and like incredible tension of these sequences in which in which things unfold in, in an unbroken take. When I first saw this movie, that was, of course, one of the main things that stood out to me was I've never seen long takes like this ever, like that were so complex, constructed around plot sequences that are so riveting and so stressful. And I mean, I, I was on in the theater watching this for the first time. You say you're on the edge of your seat. I was actually on the edge of my seat. I was going to fall out of my seat. I was so <laughs> I was leaning forward. I was clutching like the armrests of my like movie theater seat. It was such an intense, visceral experience. When a film can put me in that kind of a heightened emotional state, I'm like, wow, that is impressive. I'm a savvy film goer so that if you've hijacked my brain to that level where I am like a panicked animal, <laughs> you are doing something really special. That was where I began with the movie was just in awe of those sequences in particular. But the more I studied the film, the more I was realizing it's also just this amazing masterpiece of environmental storytelling. Every frame is packed with information. The soundscape is packed with information. It tells you everything you need to know about this post-apocalyptic world just through the environment and just through con like context and hints of what has happened here in this world. And there's an utter realism to every bit of it. Every like background actor that was cast for this movie looks so real and so believably a part of this world. You don't see a group of people that look like just they live in LA right now and they're just kind of dressed up in this shoddy clothing and they and they look just like like pretty actors made to look like post-apocalyptic people. Like, no, every person in this movie whether they're on the side of the frame or featured in a scene, you feel like they have like a whole history and mm. like a whole life in this universe. And it's just for a movie to like never slip up for every frame to feel that authentic is just mind blowing to me. And here it comes. We are officially entering spoiler territory. For those of you who want to go into this film as fresh as possible, this is where we part. If you've been enjoying the show so far and you want more My Favorite Movie Is, I encourage you to check out more episodes on our show page on the podcasting app you're listening on right now. Or find all of our episodes at mfmipodcast.com. We've covered plenty of other movies, and any movie lover worth their salt has surely seen at least one of them. But alright, enough dilly-dallying, let's dive into spoiler territory. Is there a long take in particular that really stands out to you? And can you just like, because I know you know this movie really well. So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to just like break it down. Like, I just would love like a great, like direct, a juicy direct example. The big one, the one that is the longest. Um, I'm not sure exactly the length of it. I used to know all these stats, but <laughs> it, it's, it's a very long sequence. They barely escape from Sid. Sid is the kind of sadistic prison guard. You know, once he sees the baby and such, he's like, hey, you guys are valuable. I'm going to take you in. Oh, 
And I think from the moment that they like get out of that door that's kind of jammed, and Clive Owen's character like knocks him out with like a big brick or something. From that moment on, all the way up until Clive Owen is reunited with Key and the baby, that entire sequence is one unbroken take. And that includes them uh, kind of getting stopped by the fishes. Key gets taken away. People are gunned down. Theo then is having to find Key and he's having to go through this war zone, uh, which includes like going ducking into a bus full of people. Blood literally spatters under the camera, which happened during that take. He approaches this building. There's a tank outside. Uh, the, the tank fires on the building. He runs into the building. He goes up multiple like levels of this building. Chaos is happening. Extras everywhere. Rubble, things exploding until he finally finds uh, Key and the baby. And uh, I think somewhere in there, there's a cut. The stakes in that moment are so high. I mean, you've got the one baby born on Earth in 18 years is in the middle of a war zone being kidnapped by this kind of like radical uh, group that wants to use the baby as like their flag, I guess. You've got our hero desperately trying to get through this war zone to the baby. As that is unfolding, we believe it is a war zone because there are no cuts. You're like a documentary filmmaker following somebody through the worst kind of place uh, with like danger around every corner. From a technical perspective, I don't understand how it was done because there are so many visual effects happening. There's like parts of buildings are falling off and tanks uh, firing mortar shells. And somehow it looks amazing and seamless and and tells the story. So that is like, that's the big one. And then, of course, the one that is, uh, I think, probably the most memorable and most uh, shocking is the car scene early on. That's kind of when we are introduced to the long take style that is going to kind of pop up again and again. Go, go, go. We're going to make it. Come on, we're going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. The other big one that is where long take is used to great effect is when they are escaping from the farm area. Yes. That that one is, yeah. that might be actually the best one in some ways because it's just so tense when the car is not starting and they're pushing it down the hill and it's not going fast enough. And oh my God. like that's the kind of scene where once again, having an unbroken take, it truly adds to the stress because there's no escape from this like real time, almost like doomed escape unfolding. You, like you, you can't look away. You have no respite from it. You're just stuck with them as like their escape plan is falling apart and getting worse and worse and worse. If film is, is there to uh, create an emotional experience, like, man, do these long takes create an emotional experience. <laughs> go, go, go! <laughs> it seems like whenever possible, Alfonso Cuaron was choosing to shoot just dialogue sequences, a lot of these sequences as if it was a documentary unfolding in real time. When an action scene or a suspense scene ends up being an unbroken take, you don't really even notice it at first because it's so in line with the rest of the movie, it's, it's just a natural extension of the style. It's not 
oh my God, long take begins now, everybody. Like here's a flag we're waving, you know, long take go. They just begin and then they just don't stop. And you just, you don't even maybe realize you're in one until 10 minutes in or whatever. In, in other cases, you know, if they're not well orchestrated, then I'm not engaged in the story. I'm just kind of uh, thinking about, well, it's kind of annoying now that I have to wait some extra time here for them to physically get over here because we're not having any cuts. And so, you know, we have to fill this space with something because we yeah. physically need to traverse it. And that's where I'm, yeah, I'm no longer just riveted by the movie and I'm more thinking about, oh, it's kind of annoying that we can't cut now because there's actually not enough content to fill <laughs> this physical <laughs> like requirements of the space. And so we're having to stretch the content to like make this remain a long take. And once again, I never ever even think about that during Children of Men. I'm not thinking about, oh, this is like a boring part of this scene because they're not allowed to cut. I'm so engaged and so riveted that I forget that it, I'm watching a long take, which I think that is a technique like a one or like a long take when I think it's really working is when I don't even notice until I think back later and realize, oh, wait a minute, that scene didn't have any cuts. Holy crap. I wasn't watching it just to see a long take. I was watching it for the story and for the emotions I was feeling. And only upon reflection do you realize part of the heightened emotion was because of the lack of cuts. I think that for some people, well, I think for most people, the idea of the long take, the allure of it is that temporal you know, extension. Like we have to spend a real time moment with these characters and the pace of it, like, you know, allows yourself to be real time, which sort of fights against, I think the, one of the basic tenets of film, which is the cut. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that I like to tell people that like, I think film is really all about two things. It's about lighting and it's about cutting. Mm -hmm. That's like, that. that's kind of what it is for me. And like, I think the cut is like the most underappreciated tool in film and like it's really funny that you say that like some long takes feel like like why can we cut already <laughs> like it's yeah, like it's I mean, like i, I don't, I don't want to feel that yeah yeah it's so important that we can cut like we can cut like that's one of the values of film that we can cut out all of that boring crap that we don't care about and it just it, like you know i like films like 1917 and birdman like i mean i like them but i do think something that is interesting you bring up is that sometimes those films do kind of feel like Okay, we have this one take, so we have to watch these characters traverse this like right uh, amount of literal like uh, distance, you know, and like how do we how do we fill that with information? Not to say that those two films don't have some interesting ways of filling that space, but they're not the same as Children of Men in the sense that every single moment in those long takes has a sort of piece of information or dialogue or performance, even with Clive Owen, especially that really just constitute the the use of the technique literally in the uh the car the car sequence in the first act sort of the transition from the first to the second act you have literally four characters in all four corners so the camera can't escape visual information like inherently and then you have the the gang or whatever whoever it is uh who uh, attack them so that adds a lot of information in the background while there's so much information happening in the foreground. Then the police show up. So there's like, there's no, there's no even allowance for a break in visual information. There's always information happening on screen. And so that's just like, it's just a really incredible thing. Alfonso Cron, he and his DP, um, Emmanuel Lebesque, I mean, he's like a legend. 
they work together to choreograph these long takes so perfectly to, to hit so many exact marks and include such specific frames and such specific moments to, to communicate something about this universe at the same time as we're following our protagonist through it. That's just a brilliant way to, to never have a long take feel like we have dead air. You know, it's, it's always there to educate us on the world, if not showing us a turning point in the story. And I mean, I would say in, in the three long takes I called out, it's always getting worse. It, it, yeah. Those sequences, yeah. there's, no, there's no part of those sequences where things like get better. It maybe gets better just at the very end or they, you know, they barely make it out. But every step of the way, there are these twists and turns that are making the situation even worse than you didn't think it could get worse, but it can get worse. And um, I think that is also really important. You know, like that is why I was gripping the armrests of my seat so hard and about to fall out of my chair was because, oh, my God, this is already an impossible situation. They're screwed, but it's getting worse and they're still like barely scraping by. And it, it, that's another screenwriting lesson always is just probably you need to make it worse <laughs> for your characters. <laughs> I think I think because we get scared as writers of like, how can I possibly get them out of this believably? Right. But it's like, that's the best, you know, if you're making a movie that is supposed to have suspense and be kind of a thriller, we need to truly as audience members have no clue how they could possibly get out of this. And the challenge is getting them out of it believably um, once you've pushed it all the way to that point. Like I mentioned earlier on in our conversation, it did provide kind of a North Star. It was like, okay, if you can accomplish anything in this realm it, with your film career, like that is it, that you've done it. Like that is what I want to do. Make a movie that is just thoroughly riveting and entertaining, even if it's like, entertaining in a way that is stressful you know that, that i think that's still entertainment to be taken outside of yourself in a incredibly stressful situation but also on top of that make a movie that has the utmost integrity you know it's, it's a movie that commits a thousand percent to its world and to its premise and to its themes it's not just about entertainment it's about it's making you like consider holding up a, like a dark mirror to trends that are already existing in our world. This is just a kind of heightening what's already there and kind of putting it in your face. It's like, you know, there are parts of the world that already look like this, that have always looked like this, that have always felt like this, where people's lives are this, you know, hanging in the balance and kind of using the sci-fi genre to not allow you to look away from that. But once again, it's not telling you kind of a dreary, uh, slow, like just feel bad about yourself kind of story. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of movies that, you know, are good for you. It's like eating your vegetables movies. It's like, I'm going to go watch a movie about a very sad situation in a part of the world that I should really think more about. And yeah. um, I'm a bad person uh, for not <laughs> caring. And like, I like those movies too sometimes. You know, I think I'm off for a feel bad movie once in a while that really uh, kind of <laughs> rubs. Feel bad movie, yeah. <laughs> that really rubs, you know, the horror of uh, life in your face. But I think what is brilliant about Children of Men is that it is a true suspense thriller that succeeds on that level with flying colors. It's a great sci-fi movie that gives me all my nerdy sci-fi desires of just like a fully realized what if universe and confronts me with present and real thought-provoking 
realities to consider and just to reflect upon my own life and, you know, what role am I going to play in this world? And so the North Star thing is just like a movie that does it all and does it all effortlessly, seemingly. You know, none of these things feel strained. They all feel just like naturally a part of the whole. It just showed me what was possible. You can do all this stuff in one movie and it can work and it can feel all integrated and holistic. You see movies sometimes where the director tries to do too much and it doesn't all cohere. And uh, this was just an example of a movie where it all came together and it functions at all these levels. And, and it's a movie that is infinitely rewatchable because I mean, literally watching it like two nights ago, I was seeing details in the backgrounds of these scenes or on the newspapers on the wall or the clippings on the person's mirror that was like new information about this universe that was interesting. And like, what a cool thing to like to seed a movie with that many Easter eggs that on the like, you know, 15th watch through, you're still noticing new things about this universe. Does it all. I don't understand it. <laughs> I think I think everybody would want to make a movie that people could watch 15 times and still still retain new information. Yeah. And it's a pretty solid goal for all of us. The word integrity is a really interesting word that you used here. I feel like that word in a sense sums up a lot of what we've talked about today. But I was wondering for you, what does it mean when a film has integrity and how can filmmakers make sure that their films have it? Oof, that's a big question. That word has always felt has always felt right to me when thinking about this movie almost just kind of intuitively, every character in this movie is treated with respect. Every character is a full three-dimensional human being, even the bad guys, even the fishes that have gone dark, you know, even the like creepy dreadlock dude, I feel is a full person. Yeah. And certainly all the supporting characters just feel like fully fleshed out human beings. Julianne Moore's character julian like she has a whole history as part of being an activist and getting more radicalized and she's a history with theo and you know they parted ways because of this tragedy in their history and went different directions you've got the kind of midwife uh character she was there when the first babies you know stopped coming and, and the women stopped calling in pregnant Jasper, you know, Michael Caine, like so, so wonderful. Like what a brilliant choice Amazing. to have that character. Yeah. Amazing. Michael Caine is such an important part of this movie and he, and he brings so much like kind of light and joy and kind of that, that trickster energy. There's a great character web here of, of different archetypes. He's really important, I think, for this movie feeling balanced and feeling like it, like it has that sense of joy and hope and humanity is still worthwhile you know because he's, he's out here living his best hippie life despite <laughs> despite the hardships he's obviously been through and yeah. his wife who's like a torture survivor um god talk about tear-jerking scenes oh that my scene god where he gets, where he gets the quietus out oh, yeah oh, dude. puts on the song she loves his color don't you tell talk about again in like integrity and, and like respect like yes. that is how you do a character like that with like a lot of decency like we're not we're not trying to like tug at heartstrings in a way that feels like how many i mean i feel like there are a lot of movies that have characters who deal with with um characters especially those who are uh non-verbal right character like you know characters that have clearly gone through something and it, it's very much sort of this tear jerky falsely positive or falsely i guess um 
like soapboxy kind of yeah, way of going right. about those characters. And this character is just so, so subtle. I can feel the film itself has empathy for all of them. You know, like it, the film isn't judging any of them. It's it's showing what happens when all of these people are put into these situations in this world together. What do they do? But I don't see the movie cheapening any of their lives to just be, oh, this is this is a one dimensional bad guy type of person. They are not worthy of like respect or empathy. Even Sid, the kind of like psychotic prison guard, is three-dimensional and, and kind of funny and, you know, likable in some ways. And and you and you sense that once again, he's become this twisted person because of the system he's a part of. You know, that, that's totally. the only way you could like mentally cope with it. And so uh, that is maybe one of the biggest things I notice with films like this. The filmmaker cared enough to to imbue every character with that dimensionality and to treat them all with empathy and to treat even the larger world with empathy, like to not have background actors, even that feel cheap, but to invest in your background actors, to have truly authentic performances from a lady. We just like look at for five seconds. None of it feels like it's there to break the reality of the film. And some films it's like, okay, this is a really well done movie, but oh, this supporting actor, this performance, this part of the set, this background actor, they're not crept to par. And I understand that and that happens. And yeah, you can't get it all right. So I'll forgive that. But for this moment, I am taken out of this world because I am looking at a background actor that they pulled off the street in L.A. and they're they're pretending to be an alien or something. And in this movie, that sense of immersion is never, ever broken for me. It just feels like the filmmakers cared enough to be so perfectionist with every element on screen, whether it's production design or actors or sound design or whatever, to, to not break my immersion. So it's integrity in the sense of just, I guess, being a good person and creating characters that are real human beings and helping me feel real loss and sadness when they go because they felt so real. And then just having the integrity to like, go the extra mile with every other part of the production process to not break my immersion. I love that. I think that that's something that not a lot of people talk about in the, in the filmmaking process, this idea of like, not just respecting the audience, but respecting the story and being truthful yeah. in how you tell the story. It's almost like I can just feel in this movie, Alfonso Cuaron loved this story and this idea enough to do the things that you don't have to do. Like you, you don't have to do all this but he chose to, you know, like I said, as a director, you know, I can only do this if I am in love with the story because it's, it's so difficult and you can just feel like he must have had so much love for this film to do everything that he did. He had the stamina. He had, he had the production the stamina. stamina for this movie. I mean, and to tell them, hey, let's do these incredibly complex like action scenes as unbroken long takes. <laughs> like They were shooting that Warzone long take for like 13 days or something. Yes. And then on the 14th is when they finally started actually shooting it. Uh, and they ended up doing like two days of takes like. That is the most insane dedication. I mean, unreal, like, yeah, absolutely that, unreal. <laughs> you've got to be a little bit insane for sure. Imagine coming to set, putting on your costumes, and not even like shooting a take, <laughs> just, right. just practicing the shooting of the take. Unreal commitment. He was making the choices that he didn't have to do, but also it feels like he was making the choices he had to make. Yes, in a, from a writing perspective. 
I watched this film for the first time for this conversation. And yes, I feel stupid about it. But there's a uh, when Julian gets shot at the end of the first car sequence, I freaked out. Yes. I totally freaked out. Man, it felt so refreshing for a movie to feel comfortable losing its characters. Like Julianne um, Moore, like, like you think it's going to be a movie about Julianne Moore and Clive Owen. <laughs> She's the second build, and she was probably more well-known than Clive Owen during that period, too, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they were definitely on par. I mean, and, it, and it, it's brilliant because yeah, you go into yeah. this movie, it's like, oh, there's going to be the estranged husband and wife, and yeah. through the journey, they're going to like come back together. Nope, dead. <laughs> nope done and I, you guys talked about this on the podcast which is such a great sort of backwards way of thinking of in a good way backwards way of thinking about it in the sense of the character web and the idea that all of these characters are in service of the main character so when these characters die it's not their story so we're okay with leaving them out so long as they've impacted the character in some way or they've changed them or the, something has been instilled in them and that's why all of these characters can leave us that's why jasper can get killed that's why miriam can get um taken away which was maybe the most heartbreaking of all oh, of them god i mean this i mean this movie i mean this is a dark film i mean, it I mean is, some yeah. people don't like this movie because they don't want to feel th these things and which is which is like a fair thing to want to not totally. feel this horror <laughs> yeah but i really respect the film for going there because any film that depicts essentially like a, a war-like setting or you know a society that has d devolved into this kind of like lawless or yeah just kind of like war zone type of environment I really respect a film that shows what that means, you know, and, and yeah. isn't, we don't have the safety of a Hollywood kind of like, what do they, what do they call it? Plot armor. Yeah. We're not going to pretend like good guys always survive in like the hellish war zone environment. It's like, no, this is an incredibly dangerous world. It's a miracle that anybody survives and there are going to be consequences for every mistake, every act, like every accident is going to have consequences. You, you can't just get away with messing up in this world. I was half expecting Key to die. I was like, no, please don't die. And that's that is what is brilliant. You know, if if you want your audience to once again feel like how I felt in that theater the first time and be absolutely terrified during these pivotal sequences kill julianne moore in the first act and it's like yeah oh shit so she can die that means anybody can die truly anyway, anybody can die we have to get rid of these characters we have to say goodbye to these characters we have to steep our world in such painful images because that's what this story is about like we're not gonna you know we we treat the audience with you know we know kitty gloves you know like yes this world sucks. Like this yeah, is the, yeah, this like is this, the break this of is collapse. Post apocalyptic. This is not pretty. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and I mean, so many movies in this style bring you in a universe that is so far out. Like it's so like, oh gosh, when are we at? Like think about like you know, I love Blade Runner, adore Blade Runner, but like it's hard for me to imagine a universe where we get to Blade Runner point, like in in certain ways. Right. Like for me, intentionality is different for every film, but like that film's intention is is to really transport you in this way to a vastly different world than our own. But 
it's not in the same way in Children of Men where, like, I could be walking down that city street. Like, I could be in that coffee shop. No, the, the 2027, like, when that came up on the screen this time, I was like, oh. That's fine. That's, like, six years away. We could still be there. We could still be there. <laughs> now that we're this close, I could still believe this feature could happen in the yes, next five years. dude. <laughs> we are literally, like, five years away from that. Isn't that yeah. crazy? <laughs> dude isn't that wild yeah. and like i know that you um i know you did a lot of can uh campaigning with the the bernie campaign i know you did a lot of canvassing mm. and stuff like that so yeah. i know you're a very politically minded person and so i'm sure that this movie like really speaks to you on that level too like this we talked about the film casablanca a few recording sessions ago which is a film that oddly shares a a, a few very important thematic similarities with this film mm -hmm. um in the sense of like my friend Sean, who's a guest on our show, defines the theme of that movie really well, which is a condemnation of neutrality in the face of evil. Mm, yes. And like this film in a very different way feels like that fight against apathy. That's literally the main arc of you know, Theo's character is to overcome the apathy in the world in which I can't help but think of that line from Casablanca where it's like, if we stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. And then Rick character goes like, yeah, well, then it'll be out of its misery. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and, and that line feels so applicable to this movie because this yes. is literally the misery. We are in the misery, like, deep in it. It's so easy to be apathetic, but this movie feels like a fight, you know, still fight the system, fight against the, the apathy that these systems would, would cause you. Yeah, and the movie has... A lot of hope too. I mean, that that, yeah. that is what it's like. I mean, it pushes, it earns that hope by pushing you into the darkest places. But the movie's ending is hope. You know, like it, it's there is a human project. I mean, it, I think one of the first times I saw the movie, I was like, I was just overwhelmed by the ending. I, I wasn't even sure what I saw, and like, was that in her imagination, the boat coming? Yeah. Um, but there is a mm -hmm. very clear shot of like a wide shot of Key, you know, and like dead Theo in the foreground in their rowboat and the you know the human project boat tomorrow like approaching so the movie does it does say like you know from maybe from the ashes of this like collapsed culture something new can rise up you know this new possibility i also think it's just a very resonant movie for our times maybe more than ever right now where i think we just feel like Hopefully it's not going to be like depicted in Children of Men, but I think we are, we are we're in a transition moment, I think, in, yeah. in human history, you know, like just with technology and with just, you know, climate change upon us. Like, I think the next few decades are going to be a really interesting time. And I think there's, there's a possibility of a global, you know, civilizational level transition into kind of a new way of doing a lot of things but probably on the way to that is going to be a lot of conflict and people who don't want to change the way they do things. Even back when I saw it, because that was kind of during the Bush years in America, I was very politically aware during that moment of the Iraq war and everything that was going on during the Bush years. And I was aware of this sense of like, oh yeah, like things are really going wrong in a lot of ways and we're heading in kind of a dark direction. And this movie is kind of, it's a call through the character of Theo to kind of, hey, you know, wake up, y'all. Like, if you can play a part in birthing some good out of this, you got to do your part. And the message is that, oh, yeah, there is always a chance of rebirth and hope and new, like a new thing to come into the world out of this, like, decaying world. I find that message as potent as ever in uh, 2022. And that, dear listeners, that sentiment right there, that is integrity. I mean, think about it. Going back to our previously established definition, honesty, 
having strong moral principles. That's exactly what this is. Knowing there is always hope on the horizon without shying away from the darkness that may surround it. I think that's a pretty strong moral principle, and it is being told honestly through every aspect of its filmmaking. Meticulous world-building, hyper-realistic style, inspirational themes, incredible immersion. All of these aspects of filmmaking come together to form Children of Men, one of the most incredible dystopian sci-fi movies that currently exists in film. And I'm so glad that we got to cover it with Alex on today's episode. Now, here's what I want to know from you. What other movies have integrity as we've defined it here today? I mean, now that we know what it means, I mean, Children of Men can't be the only one, right? I want you to share your answer with me in the My Favorite Movie Is Discord community. We are a group of passionate, positive movie lovers, and this server is a place for us to come together and talk about movies together and watch movies together. I mean, that's a movie lover's two favorite things, watch movies and then talk about them incessantly. Well, we've got them both right here for you. Last week, Alex joined us for a Children of Men watch party. It was incredibly exciting. We got to watch the movie with some people who got to experience it for the very first time. That's what our community is for, and we hope that you will join us for our next watch parties. Josie and the Pussycats and Death Becomes Her, two movies that we will be covering in the coming weeks with the co-hosts of the Nostalgia Podcast, Jessica Tracero and Eric Lafibri. The Nostalgia Podcast is my latest podcasting obsession. I love Jessica and Eric. They are so funny and whip smart, and they provided so much incredible insight on these two films that I'm so excited to share with you. But I have a feeling that some of you have never seen either of these cult classics. So it's time to remedy that in the My Favorite Movie Is Discord community. It is incredibly easy to join our community. Just click on the link in the show notes and follow Discord's simple instructions. Trust me, even if you don't use Discord, even if you've never even heard of Discord before today, it only takes minutes to sign up. I hope you'll join us for these fun times and more upcoming fun times by clicking the link in the show notes. We can't wait to watch some movies with you real soon. My Favorite Movie Is is a Larry Freed Presents production. The show was created by and is currently hosted and produced by me, Larry Freed, and this week's episode was edited by Fernando Cadois. Our graphic designer is Monica Sarmiento, our motion graphics designer is Elton Greenfield, and our theme song, Now and Then, as well as all original music featured on this episode, was composed and performed by Mac or Duke. A special thanks to Alex Cayetos for being an incredible guest and for being just so generous with his time. And another special thank you to our patrons, Charles, Keith, Moe, Tony, Sean, Taylor, Daniel, and our newest patron, Sheila. Thank you so much, Sheila. And thank you to all of our incredible patrons who help to support this show. Just a reminder that you can hear your name in this outro by becoming a patron today at patreon.com slash MFMI podcast. This has been your host, Larry Freed. Thank you so much for listening to My Favorite Movie Is. <laughs>